So let, let, I'm going to stop yeah, yeah. if I can stop you right there. Harm reduction is not about items. It's about a process, right? It's about it, it, it's about changing the way uh, people think about people who use substances, right? It's about tackling the stigma that people are facing every day, feeling illness in their home to the point where they're, you know, so sick that they that they will die in their house as opposed to dealing with the stigma of going to the emergency room and facing that scorn or what they perceive to be scorn of our call of our emergency room colleagues, either the security or the admins or or the nurse or the doctor or anybody along the way. Right. And that whole, you know, if you don't look right, like if you don't, you know, say, you know, are you really sick or what do you, what are you here for? Right. Are you are you drug seeking? Because you were drug seeking the last time you came about pain like three times in the last month. You know, so I, I think this is, uh, you know, you're just looking for drugs, right? That, you know, changing the the, 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 the the dynamic of that engagement, that's what harm reduction is to me. I'm here in a hospital setting, and I want to make sure that we are harm reduction capable based on what the current standards are and that we can eventually adapt as those standards evolve over time. And, and if something is causing harm in any way, we have a way of adjusting how it's uh, delivered. Yes. What, what do you think about that? That uh, is a potential I, I th conversation I think that's a, problem. That's, a, that's, that's a, yeah, that's, that's a great, uh, great discussion to have. I think that, uh, I, I think there's a lot of heavy lifting involved in getting, getting any uh, any hospital you know kind of harm reduction credentials kind of up to anything close to what the community is and I think that's you know part of the work that oh, I Oh so the community's doing it a lot better. Oh the community's yeah always done everything better right I mean it's easier for a community right it's sort of like um, I mean these organizations are are kind of uh, you know they're large it's sort of like i compare them to kind of like a, a steamship or something right or these these giant freight liners and stuff and you know some little boat goes in front of them and how daft are they to be able to move out of the way well not very right you know they, they can't steer on a little bit right they gotta there's a lot of planning there's a lot of work that goes to changing a that's a nice metaphor yeah like where would you come up with that i don't know <laughs> yeah uh, no it's a good metaphor i like it the um but you know these are uh these are uh, there's our little our little friend. This is uh, this is Coco. Please stick to the content. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, yeah, you've started uh, started something there. Um, the um, yeah, no, I think so it, you got this big freight liner. It's going in a direction. There's yes. these little boats there. The little boats do a better job. Oh, he's gonna kiss me now. Are we gonna be making out? <laughs> is that I'm not gonna be able to talk. Should I just ignore him? Yeah, just ignore him. Is, is that is that the way we show love these days? Yes, that's that's okay. yeah, right. tough love. The um, yeah, that's um, so. So you're saying that the smaller boats have ability to do more, offer more, and they're more nimble, nimble in responding to the individual people that are drowning, or whatever, whatever metaphor we want to. That's use. correct. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they're they're able to make they can change on a dime, right? So they can, uh, and um, but you know, just you know, a hundred. It's a, there's the bureaucracy of an organization that happens, right? I mean, it, it that you know, in order to make change, and you've got an organization that has it's a lot easier to make change when you've got you know, kind of twelve employees than when you have five thousand employees. Of course, of you course. Know, when you've yeah. got five thousand employees, just think about what that looks like, right? You've got, um, you know, you've got. Uh, I'm not picky on the unions, but even even just you know, changing of work requires. It's it's not just one person, you know. There's there's all you these have to go through all these different levels. All these different. They're, they're levels. really trying to protect that employee on the the ground, but it, it's hard to make a nimble change that's needed if you're uh, not. Yeah 
around. Uh, flexible for that change. Yeah, and um, you know, and, and also there are safety concerns, right? So in a hospital, you've got to, you know, you've got security changes. You've got pharmacy that's got an input, right? Pharmacy sits at, th- at these tables when policies are involved, and um, you know, and then there's uh, you know the professional organizations of all the different players that that go through, not just the unions, right? So you've got you know your uh, you know the, the the medical side of it. You've got the nursing side of it. So. I guess what I'm getting at is 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 none of this is fast, and um, as someone who sat at some of these tables, and some uh, as someone who's you know felt the frustration of the community, and someone who's worked in the community, I I see it kind of from both sides, and uh, so little things like uh, you know well we call it little, but it, it's not so little in a hospital if you're going to let somebody you know inject drugs uh in their in their in their hospital bed is that's a tricky thing yeah, so maybe we need to re- rewind a little bit right yeah. because right now we're, we're going to some of the the barriers right and and i don't think we've uh really like maybe it would be good for me to hear from you why is it important for a large organization a hospital setting to offer some type of harm reduction support sure so in very simple terms, uh, if you, I'll phrase it another way, if you don't do it, patients don't stick around, hmm. right? Like that's, you know, and hmm. okay, and, say, and somebody will say, well, so what? Let them, that's their choice, let them leave. Okay, fair enough. If they leave, um, their, uh, their care is gonna be interrupted and uh, they're either going to um, get considerably more ill or they're going to pass away and that's why. Okay, so so we have to offer harm reduction, so people who have medical conditions that could kill them or just reduce their health actually stay in the hospital and yes. get uh, get care. Yes, if they're living a certain uh, kind of life outside of hospital, when you come in and you just change everything, uh, it may not be realistic to get them to uh, stay. Okay, Correct. perfect. That that's a that's a very very good reason. What what do you think harm reduction is like? If you had to explain it to someone like me who doesn't know, like say like I'm like, hey, I'm a doctor. L- let me let me be a harm reduction uh, capable. Like what what what? Uh, and obviously, it's a complicated process, right? It's like explaining like equity, diversity, inclusion. Like make me equity, uh, make me live in a way where I'm including diversity and inclusion. And uh, yeah, I mean it's. But, it, but what, what, I mean, harm reduction uh, is such a broad term, right? It can mean so many different things. I mean, the most simple kind of classic definition of harm reduction is we're accepting people uh, for the imperfect choices that they make, and hmm. uh, which means that we accept that people are going to continue to use substances and that's just a reality, right? Abstinence is not a realistic goal for many people. Yep. Right. And, uh, and, and, and that's okay. Right. We all make imperfect choices. You know, you drink, uh, maybe, uh, you know, too much coffee and, uh, you know, maybe you, you know, whatever, right. We all, we all make imperfect choices and, uh, and there, there's no such thing as too much coffee. There's no such thing. I've, as too I've, much I've looked it up. I've looked it up. Good, good, I've good. Uh, read about it, and uh, right. I've uh, I've decided it based good. on the data I've chosen to read and Perfect. the ones Perfect. I've chosen to, to ignore. Good. Um, and uh, so, and and as a community uh, of, uh, of of kind of healthcare providers, we need to accept people and 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 uh, accept those choices as being imperfect, and that's okay. And we uh, and we move on from that. And uh, we still, you know, I often give the example of, you know, if somebody has uh, diabetes and they eat a pecan pie and they end up, you know, uh, having consequences from that, do we stop giving them care because they keep eating pecan pie? The, the challenges is that in certain uh, facilities, there are certain expectations or decorum of behavior, uh, so to speak. You know, like maybe, you know, if you want to come in hospital, you can't yell and swear at a nurse, right? Or you can't... Um, 
well, I guess you can't smoke inside the, I mean, you can't smoke cigarettes inside a building, right? And then, then you shouldn't be smoking other stuff. And in order to, to inject drugs, if, if I remember correctly, you have to use a lighter, right? You have to use a lighter, you have to like heat up the stuff, you have to. You don't have to do that, but some, uh, we, we, we suggest people do that for the, for the optimum use, but you don't need to, uh, you don't need to use a lighter. But you've highlighted a good problem with the lighter thing, right, where it's like, okay, so do we let people, most people, a lot of people these days that are using fentanyl don't inject, they smoke it, right? That's yeah. a very common Yeah, yeah, yeah the foils and so, stuff, yeah. So, you know, if that's their chosen delivery method, well, there's all kinds of issues with oxygen in, the, in a hospital. You can't be, you can't be using a lighter, right? So that's a good point, right? So there are limitations, um, and uh, that's why, uh, you know, we only have, I think there's only one hospital in Canada right now that KCS is a wonderful place, but they have the only inhalation room that I'm aware of. That's and then and, and KCS is partially community, right? So that makes it like... Yes. Uh, so it makes it a little bit easier, right, for them to yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, less, uh, less structural uh, barriers, right? Uh, and, and, I mean, uh, I shouldn't say these structural barriers because uh, some of the stuff is there in order to uh, preserve safety, right? Like safety yeah. of the whole group and stuff. You are in a hospital after all, right? And yeah, yeah. you're in a hospital for a reason. So I think there are, there are, you know, there's an expectation sometimes where, you know, even as, you know, someone, I'm just speaking personally, someone who's navigated these, these services as, you know, a substance user, yeah. And so I've seen it on both sides do draw some distinction from my uh, community colleagues sometimes where they say, OK, they have to be able to do this. You have to be able to do this. You got to give them everything that they want. And it's like. I get it, uh, but also as someone who's been in an ICU eight different times, I'm like, but I'm in an ICU. Right. And I'm here for a reason. And I wouldn't want I guess I would like the autonomy to make the decisions, I think. But at some point, there's part of me that says, I'm also pretty close to dying, and I, I chose to come to this hospital, so maybe I kind of want some of the best medical care I can get. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, and, and, and it gets tricky, right? Because uh, with with hospitals, with infections, with uh, these life-threatening medical conditions, uh, people get these pockets of time where they're a little bit confused, right? They might not remember where they are. They might not uh, know what they need. And this is for everyone, not just people who use uh, use drugs. And so then uh, the capacity and decision making is, is tough too. Yeah. And then the other thing with the the addiction, as uh, as as you know, and uh, and, and I've seen, uh, is that uh, people aren't thinking long term. So even if they don't want to die, they want to live. They're thinking about how to relieve that suffering in the um, the moment. Yeah. And and maybe I don't know that there's an option of saying to my you know uh, to my provider to my physician, and they're saying you know is there, I'm a little uncomfortable right now. Um, is there a way you can make me a little bit more comfortable? And uh, like having that conversation can be very difficult for a patient, right? And oh, I think, interesting. And but as opposed to you know somebody serving me up a tray of meth or something, and and and, and I'm not, that may sound like an extreme thing, but but you know there's advocates out there that say that that's what we should offer, that's what you're comfortable with. So I want my meth. Yeah. But there's a lot of consequences of me doing meth, and there may be yeah. interactions with the medication you're providing me as a physician. Yeah, because the risk uh, risk might change, right? It may, it may be a different level of risk, uh, and it's one thing when the, someone does that choice outside of hospital. It's another thing when they do that with us and in, in front of us, right? Uh, you know, and we're we're giving other stuff that can alter the risk even a slight amount. Right. So actually, that that was really nice. So so I, I just because because I'm just trying to frame it in my mind, and I think we're gonna have to have three or four conversations about this, <laughs> unfortunately, right? Because uh, I just I'm I'm still grasping um, what the full body of yeah. work is for it, and then I'm also trying to figure out what's that smaller 
portion of that that's worth going through all the tables to, to fight for, right? Like it's because uh, it'll end up being like a negotiation like process, right? Because you can't just roll out everything for, for everyone. And one thing I did want to make, which which I'm going to write down because I think this word is very, very important. It's the, the comfortable. And so when I go in and see any patient, right, who comes in, especially if they're using opiates or other substances, uh, I'll say, hi, my name is Whip Lamba. I'm a physician. I help people with pain who use drugs and I try to help them be more comfortable. I sometimes adjust the methadone. I sometimes adjust the buprenorphine. I give them pain meds. I say, what can I do to help you feel more comfortable? That's actually my, and we haven't talked about this separately, but that's literally the line that I take. And then, then I figure out what they need. I I, I reach out, I call the pharmacist, figure out what I can give them. And then boom, it's uh, done. And because um, I'm a little bit overly concerned, I think about tolerance, I haven't fully appreciated uh, how potent the new fentanyl is. But also the other thing, JP, is that when people have severe medical conditions where they're required to come into hospital, they may not have the energy, right? So they may not have the energy to use as heavily as they had the last few days. And then their lung capacity changes as well. And so it's almost like I try to start lower, but I try to ramp up quickly whatever we're giving them, right? So for example, um, there was one case where the person was on I was told 150 milligrams IV of hydromorphone twice a day. And just to give you relative things, so normally when someone comes in, we give them half a gram, uh, sorry, half a milligram yeah. every four hours, right, IV. And so this guy was on 150 BID, but when I, when I called uh, the places, I found out the person only got two, three doses in the last week, right? So something else was going on where the person couldn't, um, couldn't show up. And so it was just, it was this whole sort of a process to figure out what to give, how to give. I, I mean, my point is that there's something in the making the person comfortable. Yes. Yeah, and I think the, you, you touched on, uh, you know, really, I mean, this is getting really deep into the weeds, but, you know, w- navigating some of the these these folks that are in safe supply programs when they get in as an inpatient, I think that's probably beyond the scope of our talk today. It is, yeah, because yeah. I guess it's, but, uh, but that's that more is like a, a specific clinical but, example. But yeah. that, is, that is a very difficult, uh, you know, road to navigate for many different reasons. And um, we could probably do a whole talk just on yeah. just on how to manage that care, and and it is something that uh, that uh, from a hospital perspective that we are struggling with constantly to keep those patients uh, to get those patients to keep them in in the program, but also to keep them safe, keep them alive, because sometimes these uh, these safe supply numbers are off the charts typically, but then we don't know what the use is if the use matches the the prescribed amounts and all that kind of stuff. So, so the two things that um, have stayed with me so far, I mean others stuff has as well um, uh, is that you know harm reduction is a tool that's essential in the hospital setting uh, because you want people to keep uh, complete their medical care yes right uh, and and it starts from place of acceptance of whatever uh, lifestyle or personal choices people have made and regardless of whether or not uh, those uh, choices are contributing to their their problems we we do everything we can to make sure they get that best medical care and and one of the key things uh, that's incredibly important is how to help this person be the most comfortable possible uh, so that they'll stay during that course in uh, time yes yeah exactly yeah and and then the other the other thing is that there's a lot of structural barriers and i think that we might have to leave for a little bit later because for for today i really just want to get a feel for what to uh what to offer and and in the last um 
five or six years, like uh, there's been a huge push for for naloxone. It's changed dramatically, right? So with naloxone, uh, all the pharmacies you can just walk in and pick it up. Uh, naloxone is fascinating, you know, because we always talk about giving to patients, but you can't administer naloxone on yourself, right? <laughs> right when you it, it's it's for it's for someone else, right? So we're literally giving to somebody where they're either going to have somebody else administer it or so forth. And then every now and then you'll hear a story where someone's like, "Oh, I was using the the fentanyl; it was so strong. I had to use naloxone." And you're like, "Okay, something's not." So, so naloxone was the first, I think, uh, a medical invention of harm reduction in the hospital setting that was a bit readily accessible, right? And it's gone to the point, I think, that other facilities have this stuff too. Right. And even that's, a, I mean, that's a great example of, of something we struggle with, right? So, uh, and I think it's, it's almost hopefully getting to reach the saturation point that anyone who wants it gets it, right? Who has it now, yeah, yeah. basically. Well, I mean, I, I think the argument is that people can get it. They just have to go to the pharmacy and they pick it up and they right. get it. Yeah. So, and, and if you go to a hospital pharmacy, you may be there for you know two hours waiting for an appointment to be told how to use it oh because they have to teach you they can't just give it to you without the teaching well if you go to the hospital pharmacy they have to teach you right if you go to a community place they, they hand it out like it's like it's candy but but it's an interesting point and i think let's let's talk about naloxone for a second and and i'm certainly not picking on any hospital but uh who, who do you think can use this naloxone in a hospital who who could administer it Oh, I, I know, I know. It has See, to be a health, tricky. Yeah, you're right. It has to be a healthcare provider. But, oh. but we've uh, we've uh, got in now, so the peers can do it too. So any hospital employee can administer it where I work. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's because so. that's what they did at uh, CAMH. They had a CAMH a couple of years ago. So we got their documents, and wow. then we we brought them over to our place, and we had like five, six meetings, and now uh, we have a. Uh, um, actually, actually, I don't. Uh, sorry, sorry. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was talking about who can dispense it. Ah. You're talking about who can administer yes. it. Yeah. Who can save the life? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we both agree that it should be anyone, right? It should be anyone sure. who can uh, administer it. And and I think uh, in the corporate world, uh, in a lot of these uh, places, they're they're rolling out naloxone kits like they do defibrillators. Yeah. Well, so you've rolled. So if if you've been able to do it with, uh, if you've got the dispensing thing, then you guys are you guys are ahead of others. Uh, if if a, if a peer, I didn't know you, you wanted you have peers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. If uh, you're, I mean, peer... I mean, they don't work. They don't work with me directly. They're, they're... but they're allowed to distribute them, the naloxone in yeah. your hospital. All right, we won't hold you to that. Yeah, but, um, well, we, we have the meetings. Are, like maybe then, we're waiting for certain. Other then that's good. That's good, yeah. and that's uh, that's one thing. But again, it's like who can uh, who can use the naloxone, and um, you know we uh, we struggle with that. And who can uh, you know we would want you know maybe security should carry it with them. Mm, they don't. And, uh, you know, and it's uh, and even administering it, it uh, if somebody is in a state that they need naloxone, we should be calling a code and the code team should come. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I remember I, I had one in my office just for teaching purposes and I felt like horrible wasting one just for teaching purposes so people could see it. Uh, but then, you know, there was a there was a code blue overdose. The resident that was in my office, I was off site that day, just took it and administered it. And I was like, OK, great. You know, and I'm glad that happened. But it's like uh, it's you, you don't know when you're going to need it and how. And then for me, the part I struggle with is what point do you um, administer it? Because yeah. I see so many people that are passed out, not responding to things, maybe passed out is not the correct term. And then I literally have to like, look, do I see something moving? Then I start to yell. I sort of nudge a bit. And then if they're sort of breathing, most of the time they tell me to fuck off. <laughs> like it's happened like three times where I'm like this. Then one guy wasn't responding. You know, I, I didn't have a kid. I, I start calling him. Then he's like, leave me alone. I'm like, okay. so Because it's hard to tell, right? Is somebody actually uh, breathing or not so so this is this is embarrassing like at what line do you do you give it because if you give it the person's gonna be so angry with you right like when they wake up and sometimes sometimes they are angry with you and i sometimes i mean i i like to err on the caution of i, I mean i don't i don't 
if somebody's responsive, I, I'm not. I'm not administered naloxone. You haven't? No, no, okay. not to somebody who's uh, passed out and uh, to someone who isn't passed out. Have you administered it? No, no, but but I've uh, <laughs> I've I've seen patients where it was administered to like maybe a couple hours before. Okay, uh, so yeah, so I've uh, I have I I, I I've you know I've I've done that a number probably about I don't know maybe three or four times I think in total, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, but uh, I've only done the uh, the nasal thing once, and the other two or three times was the IV, yeah, yeah. not IV, uh, IM, yeah, 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 um, yeah. It's uh, you know it's uh, it, it it's scary stuff. Um, uh, in the sense that, yeah, so one guy kind of swung at me. The, uh, I think it was the first guy oh, uh, swung at me, and uh, but I think it was more of like a, a, a reflex, yeah, yeah, not yeah. not because it was with intention. Um, and um, yeah, I won't go into too many details, but it was in a clinical setting, and uh, one of the one of the latest times, and it was uh, uh, the individual needed three uh, three uh, doses of it to. Two, two nasally, and then one, um, and then one IM. Uh, so when when you administer, does the person stop breathing fully? Yes, and oh no, not in all cases. Just non, completely non-responsive, and uh, do that kind of sternum rub with the knuckles, right where oh, you're like gosh, going so up and down. And there's no response to the sternum rub. That's when you give it. That's the, when I've given it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think other people have different. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know. Uh, you know, I was kind of in the, in, you know, I'm, I'm kind of astonished sometimes. Like I, I was originally in one of the tra- naloxone trainers because I went through that extra eight hour course to yeah, yeah, yeah. be a trainer of it. And it's, you know, people react differently to different so, sorry, situations. Just out of curiosity. So you've got the trainer training. Are you allowed to administer naloxone to patients in the hospital setting? Mm-hmm. Or is it when you, when you leave the building, you're allowed to, oh, you can't say, let's I, not say, let's not say. You know, even as somebody who sits at those policy tables, I'm not even sure to be answer to answer your question. I'm not sure what the actual policy even is, and yeah. you know, I kind of err on let's try to keep this person in front of me alive. If yeah, there's yeah, some, yeah. if there's a tool that I have that's going to keep them alive, I'll ask for forgiveness later than permission before. <laughs> what I've learned so far is that um, harm reduction. Uh, is really about uh, allowing people in hospital settings, allowing people to complete their medical care. Um, it's uh, really about helping people remain um, comfortable. Uh, and there's a lot of structural uh, barriers. And one of the first ones with naloxone, it's it's very interesting when you start to look at how it's used in different facilities, who's allowed to dispense it to people, whether you dispense it to the person who uses drugs or their, their friend or if they know someone who uses, all those kinds of things. Uh, and, uh, and then how to use it is uh, important to figure out uh, as well. And then once you get into a large organization where there's a lot of medical legal uh, liability, you have to figure out who, who is it that can uh, administer it, right? Yes. In what way? And, and is it something where uh, you have an official policy or you just sort of... Uh, um, whatever that might might be, and and the same thing, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, I think I think I mean hospitals need official policies, yeah, yeah, and let's go through the the supplies then as well, right? Because so naloxone is, uh, I mean, it's it's a major part of harm reduction, uh, but it's it's not as major, I think, because I, I mean when 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 people were talking about make sure you give them a naloxone kit, make sure you give them a script for for something, part of me is like. This doesn't deal with the day-to-day pattern of uh, use, and it doesn't resolve the harm in the day-to-day pattern, right? Because it's not like uh, people uh, uh, need naloxone five or six times a day, right? Like it's it's the yeah naloxone. It's sub, it's, I think I think people say that. I mean, I, and I, I I'm a I'm, I say it all the time too. But it's like it's one piece that you can do, right? It's something 
you can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's not. It's certainly not. Uh, you know, I don't know what it is. If it's if it's ten percent of harm reduction, it's it, it, you know that would be a lot. Right? Because yeah, not everyone's. It's it, again. It's only. It's naloxone only works for people that have an opiate uh, overdose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, but but a lot of people right now don't. Yeah, there's people have benzo overdose. Doesn't work yeah, for yeah, that. Yeah, you know, you have benzo All overdoses. You have a stimulant overdoses <laughs> where the heart stops. Yeah. You, have you got a million like, scenarios where it's not. Seizures, it's not like going to help. Things. Not yeah, going to yeah. help at all. And I know that we've we focused a lot and we should on the opiate crisis, but that's not that's not the extent of the yeah. substance use. I mean, I mean it, it's a, it's it's partially really upsetting to me too because. Uh, uh, people uh, who live and work in places where overdoses have been common. Like, I mean, I think uh, there was this one uh, talk I saw, like this is like a, more than a decade ago. It was a guy who was from Chicago and they'd been trying for like at least a decade or more to get an naloxone where you can just pick it up at the pharmacy. You don't have to. And then when they finally got it, like at some place you can pick it up, it cost like $1,500 per shot, right? Like it was just like absurd how it was uh, done. And the drug itself is so, it's so cheap, right? But it's the delivery uh, system. And and there's so much more than our people need with the naloxone. And the problem is that when you, when you put such importance on one thing, and and you deliver it's like my hands are washed you know i've i've done my my duty you, you got your naloxone what else you, you got want? your naloxone i'm gonna go home and uh sleep my work and, here is done uh, yeah my work here is done and so naloxone is something it looks like it's been a fight for for a while to have those barriers reduced and access increased yes and there's tons of places of success but even the places that aren't where they eventually want to be they're moving in the right direction yeah what are the other items? Because when I first went to the works, like, um, I don't know if it was 2015, 2016, because you may not know this, all public, um, all cities have a public health facility that offers uh, supplies. Back then, all they were giving were uh, needle kits and they were giving um, some kind of smoking kit. So let, let, and I'm going to stop yeah, yeah. if I can stop you right there. Harm reduction is not about items. It's about a process, right? It's about it, it, it's about changing the way uh, people think about s people who use substances, right? It's about tackling the stigma that people are facing every day, feeling illness in their home to the point where they're, you know, so sick that they that they will die in their house as opposed to dealing with the stigma of going to the emergency room and facing that scorn or what they perceive to be scorn of our call of our emergency room colleagues, either the security or the admins or or the nurse or the doctor or anybody along the way. Right. And that whole, you know, if you don't look right, like if you don't, you know, say, you know, are, are you really sick or what do you what are you here for? Right. Are you are you drug seeking? Because you were drug seeking the last time you came about pain like three times in the last month. You know, so I, I think this is, uh, you know, you're just looking for drugs, right? That, you know, changing the, 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 the dynamic of that engagement, that's what harm reduction is to me. Yeah, and that's going to be that's going to be another process in it uh, in itself, right? Because, uh, yeah, it's going to be another process because the when, when I think about people who work in the emergency, you know, in their minds, uh, you know, people that have car accidents that are trauma, that's but but the, because of the way the healthcare system is broken and and how people don't have a place to go, they'll see people with sniffles, they'll see people with uh, small bruises, people that have like uh, chronic pain, but they can't see their their doctor. And so a lot of times in the emergency, uh, I think I think the emergency departments are very good at, uh, you know, keeping you alive in the uh, short, although 
they still need to work on people who use drugs, figure out how to keep them alive. But in general, right, if you take addiction, they're good at like figuring out, hey, is this person going to live or die in the next day? Let me connect them where they need. And if it's more of a chronic condition, they, they do the other sports. And they have a little bit of that. Um, uh, what was the word you use? Like frustration or something? Or like, uh, it was a negative word, which is, is sort of true because you get annoyed, right? It's, it's like, say, if, um, what would it be like? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt. I'm going to give you an okay. example. And I'm going to put you on the spot here because sure, we, sure. Just, we just talked about this. We talked about you, you have a, 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 a cut on your yeah, face, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and you talked about, um, uh, we ended up both talking about what happens when you had a cut on your head, and and one of the challenges is that you know the pattern the pattern of hair. If you get your stitches in the wrong way, you may end up with a little tiny bald spot. Yeah, a scar, right? a scar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got like so, four scars on my head. Okay, <laughs> four scars, and, and now they uh, now they use like uh, hairs and glue, and uh, there's no scar, and the uh, well almost no scar, and then the hair grows. Perfect. But I've got these patches, so every time I shave my head, it just uh, you see all these. And they're yeah. like, were you okay as a kid? You bumped so, into a lot of uh, a lot of things. A lot of things. But yeah. uh, n- not a shocker on that either. But let. But do you really think? Do you really think that that our folks, the folks that we support, do you think they're getting the same kind of scar treatment that you got? Yeah. Your your, your stitches look pretty clean there. They're very clean. I was very like shocked clean. How clean it was. Yeah. And do you yeah. think? Do you think our folks? Do they look that clean? No. No. And why and it, don't they look that clean? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I don't know. Yeah. You don't know? Yeah. I, it's, God, you can see what side I'm on, right? Because uh, you don't want to criticize our, our colleagues, you know, and uh, stuff like that. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the things. There's a different level of attention to detail depending on who the person is. When the aristocrats or the wealthy get a cold, the poor die of pneumonia. And, uh, and I think, like, um, yeah, like stuff for, yeah, yeah. You know, it's uncomfortable to think about how different people get different levels of uh, care based right. on who they are, what they do, the choices they make. Uh, and uh, when, when there's a feeling uh, consciously or unconsciously around personal responsibility where the person caused this, you know, as opposed to them being uh, being a victim, right. uh, there's a different level of uh, TLC that comes in that interaction. Right. So so you're, you're you know, um, not to overshare, but to, you, this happened in a basketball game, not because you were intoxicated and fell on your face. Yeah, but but I sometimes leave that open right, to, to, <laughs> sure. for interpretation. Yeah, so, I was playing so, in the basketball so, game, and I was I was at fault. I was overly aggressive uh, okay. on the defense. You know, but but that the, but again, it it, it it's just as self induced or just as much involvement as one of our guys who just you know kind of you know not nods off and falls on his face right yeah yeah cuz it's not like they're 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 not, they're not getting a knife and cutting and even if they were getting a knife and cutting their face open there needs to be TLC in that care but but these are people that are not choosing to have the harms uh, they're they're coming in because usually people force them a lot of people that use drugs will literally stay at home uh, for like 4 or 5 days you know like with these horrible wounds uh, the the worst part that that about me visiting the the works and the public health facility in Toronto is that I heard all these stories of uh, patients that would come in and see the wound care nurse uh, regularly because they trusted the wound care nurse, but their infections were getting worse. They need to come to hospital and they were refusing to go to the hospital. They didn't feel safe going there, right? So right. So all these structural barriers you bring up are real. They're, they're uncomfortable for me to process and deal with because I, I work in the uh, larger institute. I've worked in like four, five, six, six different hospitals, Yeah. right? Uh, and it's uh, for all of them. It's not like there's one that's, uh, hey, you know... <laughs> Like uh, we we love going to this one, right? Right. This so. And and I'm and I'm not again. I'm not trying to single you out for it because I'm I'm a, a product of this system too now. So if I I I work in the I work in a hospital, 
and most of the time when I, I needed medical care, yep. I get treated in a, at a different level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But not all the time, right? So no, I, I remember, I remember a couple of times uh, stuff that came up. Yeah, so there's, you know, I, I, I come back to an example where, where I've had to navigate the hospital myself because, uh, you know, I still have some residual effects because of uh, because of my substance use. One of them is I, I, I get infections relatively easily, yeah, yeah. Um, perhaps because I'm immunocompromised, and that, that, that happens as well. So I had a, you know, I, I had a tooth infection where my, you know, eye was closed and my, you know, I was starting oh. to affect my my breathing. And uh, so they put me on IV antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And, and that's fine. So uh, I went to my dentist. My dentist told me to go to the hospital. The hospital put me on IV pretty, pretty quickly. So yeah, because yeah. I, I knew the doctor there at the time. So it, it, it went pretty well. But until the one point where the nurse came by and said, oh, um, I, I'm here to start your IV. And I said, oh, okay, that's great. But um, I got to tell you, I, I, the only place I have a, an accessible vein is, 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 is in my foot. And, and she looked at me in disbelief, and this is somebody who knows me. I still had my hospital badge, and I was at work at the time even. That smile was turned upside down into a frown, and, you know, and it was me now. Everything came flooding back to me. I, I don't know that her care was, was substandard. I'm not suggesting that, but, but uh, I didn't feel as welcome yeah, in the yeah. place, and, and everything rushed back on yeah, me. So that, yeah. that trauma that I experienced from substandard care for a number of years, which I yeah. believe I received yeah. uh, because of my substance use, came flooding back to me, and it yeah, was like, yeah. oh, I, 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 I'm not doing an IV in your foot. I, I have to go talk to the doctor, and I have to get permission to do yeah. that. And, yeah. and, uh, and so it's, for me, it was just all that stigma came, you know, running back to me. Now, was it any different to get the IV in my foot or my arm? <laughs> Not really. Well, we'd have to see if there was policy differences or if it was a personal difference. I don't know. No, no. I, I hear I'm defending the hospitals like that. Yeah. Like, uh, that's, I'm, I'm sorry. It. It's probably very invalid. Defend it. No, Cause it took, it, it took her 90 minutes to come back, you know, and then somebody else had to start the IV in my foot ultimately. And, sorry, um, yeah. and, and, but for me it was like, I don't know if I want to go through that again. Right. So if I didn't want to go through that again. Oh, just the process of letting them know. Just the process of letting them know. Just oh the process of, of not being an equal anymore. Right. I'm not I'm not a member of the club anymore because I, I'm one of those guys that needs IV in their foot because they injected too many drugs. Okay. So I'm, I'm a less less than. Right. And, you know, and that um, that was really tough. So I bring that story up because this is what people struggle with. People struggle with being that that exception. Right. It's like being labeled as the as the substance user. And I'm somebody who who speaks of it. That's what I do for a living. That's what I'm sitting here talking about. That's all I do. So so think about the person that who doesn't doesn't do any of that. That does it completely. It's a private experience. And they know they know the 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 frown is going to come. Yeah, the frown is going to come. Or the whatever nonverbal may not even be a frown. Well, you're not going to get it. First line, it's going to have they have to go back and they have to get permission. And then even that permission isn't transfer. So it was the I was in what's called the you know rapid program or something or. Uh, you know, no weight program. I don't know what they called it at, at that time. With the and, IV, yeah. yeah, with the IV. So uh, you come back every eight hours to get the, the thing. So you would think at least while the permission that, that she got, and it took 90 minutes to get, would be transferable to when I came back eight hours later. No, it's not. Oh, every time you have to have the conversation a couple yeah. of times. Normally I wouldn't need to see a doctor to get the new IV. One doctor orders it, you come, the nurses hook you up. But was he, it a nurse who put the IV in? Yes. So yeah. they have the skill set. Oh, absolutely. They have the skill set. Oh, so I was assuming they, they might not have. I'm trying to find like reasons why the barriers would be there, but it sounds like it's, it is stigma. It is a judgment. I, I, th- let's yeah. assume they have a policy that it's non, a non-conventional spot. But the point, the point I'm making is that why, uh, why couldn't the, the doctors consent 
from you know one day transfer to eight hours later so you got to find another doctor now yeah and there's only one doctor on the service it's 11 o'clock at night and that's fine that's what happens and so then i've got to wait again to get reapproved to get that so and how many people are going to wait yeah no wonder none of my patients want to get blood work yeah no wonder another want to get blood work you know like uh because they're definitely not using ultrasound guided uh, things in these oh, clinics, you know, like, and for people who use drugs, even if you had an ultrasounded guided way to get the, the IV in, uh, you'd still miss a couple of times, right? Depending on where you're oh, trying you'd, to go you'd for. Oh, you'd miss all of them. As somebody yeah. who, is, who is kind of almost a non-existent uh, or non-accessible uh, venous system in their body, vein system in their body, you know, I used to have it get it done through interventional well, radiology this is, this is such a so, great conversation and and not not because uh, of your uh, suffering like and because because i feel like shit right like because i i fully don't appreciate i i keep uh, in my mind i i always run to what's within my control and what can i do but the problem is the way i sometimes uh, say that you know people don't feel validated for their current state right well no i think the pro the, the, there, there's not a lot you can do you don't run the hospital I mean, many people think no, many people think that though. Many people think that the doctors run a hospital. <laughs> yeah, no, we definitely don't have to do what they tell. Them. No, yeah, no. <laughs> for you, for a lot of things, I, I mean, do what they tell me. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, there are some yeah, doctors, no, yeah, and there's ways to talk, right? Because you can't just like start screaming and yelling in meetings. You have to be strategic, and it takes time. Yeah, but you gave me a, a phenomenal uh, idea just here. So, so we're gonna have a drop-in um, addiction uh, clinic, uh, and uh, why not have that at the same time? that we have some kind of a phlebotomist or a nurse or whatever who's trained in using the ultrasounded guided uh, uh, IVs. Sure. And just so it's part of the expectation, right? So it'll be either every Wednesday morning, because I think that's the only way to get proper uh, blood work, right? Uh, and it would take time. It would take time and trust and all that stuff. But you can't send somebody who's uh, injected drugs for a few years or a decade uh, in to see an average phlebotomist, right? Uh, let alone a resident who's like, I mean, it's different. You know, when, when, uh, when some family members trained in India, they would do thousands of these. Uh, they, they had one year where all they were doing <laughs> was like taking blood here. Like I've maybe done like three IVs in my life. You know, you know how absurd that is, you know, like a medical doctor only having done like three or four IVs. You yeah. Know, I, don't, a, I don't want you drawing my blood. No, no, I don't, I don't drop blood. I, yeah. So, so yeah, so I, I have an idea that, that I have to take to the next uh, level. And also hearing your story helped me build some compassion for these people that I see that just don't want to leave uh, blood work. Yeah. And I'm not convinced that mass trainings of an organization with 10,000 employees, I don't, I'm not convinced it actually works. I think it, it can be part of it. I think it can be part of it. But I think there has to be something else that happens on the ground around an evolution of a philosophy, especially when we're talking about attitude shift, because we're not talking about skill shift, unless we frame the training as a skill shift. We're talking about, about an attitude shift. And, uh, and it's got to be constant. It's got to be ongoing. It's got to be recurring. It's got to be mandatory. So this is what it's I It's got to be mandatory. It's got to well, be right? absolutely has to be mandatory absolutely has to be mandatory and i've been you know and 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 it's got to be kind of at ground level oh. right the, you know it can't just all be off a module um oh. although i'm a huge fan of having modulized training and and uh you know and uh, you know it's, it's got to be a relatable training right so there you have to have somebody doing these trainings that knows their shit that's my opinion of it like i think it has to be somebody they can relate to yeah, I think um, I mean, as uh, you know, obviously I'm a little bit biased. Uh, you know, I've done I've literally trained you know, thousands of people on yeah, this yeah. now at this point. 
and um, you know, I, the the smaller the group, the better. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, and you know, I, it, it has to be all inclusive. There, nobody's immune to the training. So housekeeping, hundred percent. Nobody that should be excluded. I agree with that hundred percent because when uh, we talked, uh, when I saw this talk by Bill Miller, and he was trying to create a warm uh, environment, he trained everyone in motivational interviewing. Yep. And I mean, harm reduction—it's uh, different than motivational interviewing, but there's something about that philosophy that's different than this is what you need to do to get care. Yes, it's a different uh, approach than uh, than that, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, it, ha- it, it, it I, I like the the idea of the janitors, the security, everyone being trained in this thing. Hundred percent, right? And uh, you know, the it, it hopefully it can be done by somebody on your team, right? There should be somebody on your team who can do it, right? That has perhaps been there. I mean, I, I'm I, I guess I'm a little bit spoiled in doing that, in that I can, you know, I, I've actually had the opportunity of training some of the nurses that provided care to me um, as a as a patient, uh, which is unique yeah, yeah. and um, and powerful. And uh, for both of us, and you know, you know, you could say, well, you know, did you call them out on their stuff? And I'm like, I didn't, and I didn't, and and, yeah. and but but that wouldn't have gotten me anywhere. No, no, and, and the funny thing is, I, I hear those questions all the time, and I just sort of slowly, I just sort of ignore them, and uh, and yeah, and then when other people are there doing the care, they they try to call them out on stuff, and then I'm like, I need to do more, like the the whole idea, like uh, yeah, there's there's a few situations like that where I'm just. Uh, yeah, but I, but I don't find that works. So what I do is uh, all their care isn't bad. I I compliment them, you know, on the relationship. I I even point out, you know, you probably don't remember. Is me. this the training or is this when you're a patient? Is no, this, this is no, 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 no. When I'm no, no, I've never done it. When I'm a patient, I'm a patient. I don't tell them okay. what I do. Oh, so when you're training others, you validate all the stuff they do well first. Yes, I've I well I I went for the people that I've had interactions with that actually provided care that could be improved upon let's put it that way I, I i build on the good things that they did and and uh and and show them just by example like you know i think the biggest thing for them is that they just they they write people off right they they, they think i i believe this is how i believe because i see them giving different care to different people and um so and i think for our population what they tend to do is say you know this is all self and self uh uh, this is a, this a, what a, you've heard sort of off the record, or you've seen indirectly. No, I just I, I just draw this conclusion based on I draw the nonverbal. I, I th- yes, I think that I think that the I, I think the reason they they treat people with addiction in a different way often is because they um, don't consider them their worthy of their best care perhaps right because they did it to themselves it's self-induced and they're not going to the biggest part they're not going to get better anyway so what's the point oh my god you you, you think people believe this i 100 percent think that so, so this 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 we can change and and you know harm reduction is a great way to change it because it changes what the goal is well, right and just to build on that point I, this we can change because when i'm standing in front of them then they've seen it change. Yeah, they yeah. saw it change. Yeah, they yeah, saw yeah, somebody, yeah. and that's what I say. I say, look, yeah. look, I, I work with you now. You know, <laughs> I, I I pay taxes now. I pay the same. Yeah. I'm in the same union you're in. Yeah, yeah, you, you know, are. and yeah. um, so it can change, right? So you, I, I get it. It's not always going to change, but there's there that I the substance person that uses substance is just as worthy of care as as everybody is, as the doctor is, right? Yeah, and the doctor shouldn't get better stitches than the person. With, yep. with substance use. They should get yep. the same quality of care, right? Yep. And um, we should all get the same quality of care, right? Because yep. we're all worthy of that same level of care. Anyway, yep. I get a little passionate about this. but 
No, but I, but I think this is a very uh, important uh, thing, you know, because uh, no one's going to share what beliefs they have uh, inside. And, uh, you know, people can tell when the words don't match the nonverbal, right? The nonverbal or the actions or, uh, or those kinds of, uh, kinds of things. And, and I think like, um, yeah, no, I agree with all you said. I, I never considered the fact that, uh, people write people off uh, that people or maybe I did consider but I just don't like to have it fresh in mind that uh, they, they cause this uh, themselves mm -hmm. and then they're not going to get um, get better and part of me was and, and and I do this all the time right because um, I try to think what's the task that can be can be done like just when when I see people who use drugs where they need to see their family doctor and they don't want to um, they say oh they don't listen they, they think I'm drugs using this and I'll, I'll be like well no look you have this one symptom this is the test we need. How do we get them to order? So immediately go to those uh, those steps. And for this here, you know, I'm thinking about um, in the trainings and stuff, because there's the attitude shift that you talked about. There's other people that I've worked with where maybe they need the attitude shift too, but they also don't know the steps. They don't know the steps how to help. And I think once you bring in a harm reduction philosophy, all of a sudden you're changing the goalpost because the goalpost isn't that the person never uses drugs again. They, they have a meaningful life. They pay taxes, although maybe it's arguable if that's a, I mean, I, mean, I, I think, I don't know. Like I just pay taxes, meaning they're not a drain on the system. They're a contributor to the system. That's the only reason I sing it, bring up paid taxes yeah, right? because they see themselves as a lot of people say, what, why is, why, why is my tax dollar supporting other people? I hear that all the time. You hear that all I the hear time, that all right? the time from the healthcare workers directly. From the healthcare workers. Yeah, I hear that from my colleagues. Absolutely. It's, well, I'm I don't sorry. know. I don't know. Because I don't know. I remember growing up, you know, uh, my dad's a bit weird, but but he's like, uh, <laughs> he was like, why not pay? Like, I think it was, a, what is it, 50, 50 some percent? I don't know what the what it was back then, right? It's probably gone up. And he's like, you know, they, they pave the roads, they give schools, they give education, and we, we care for the weak, right? We, we, we give them hospital care, medical care, all that stuff. And, and even though I think it was only in the 80s, it, it started, you know, that, that's one of the reasons I, I love being in Canada, even with whatever uh, tax rate and, uh, and stuff like that. So, yeah, so sorry. Just, I, I, I don't like hearing these, uh, these truths. It's, it's, it's uncomfortable to hear. Yeah. But the, the where, where I was going with that is that um, if we set the target goal different, right? So what's the target, right? The target is that this person stays for the two weeks, gets enough antibiotics that they can transition to oral, or the person stays for this time, then they get some kind of safer place to go afterwards. It's very different than them changing their entire life. And, and I think that's a doable uh, goal. And then the other thing, uh, JP, that I think is, is important, I don't know how to, how to frame this, um, is that uh, people are so worried. And part of it is uh, we've had this training over the last decade or two where doctors were trained to provide meds for pain. And it caused a devastating effect when people were fully treated for their pain at really, really high doses. And then it caused a worse effect when they stopped providing those medications. Yes. And the, the correction or the overcorrection or whatever the, the term is uh, in hospitals has been, we don't want to give drugs to people that are drug-seeking, right? You know? And, uh, you know, uh, and, and I don't know, there has to be a way to share that, hey, for these people who uh, use drugs, the ship is sailed, they have an addiction. You giving them one hydromorphone, one Percocet is not going to change that that addiction. Uh, let's get them uh, comfortable, right? And so I, I've made it a practice to shift. Uh, I don't give opiates for pain or withdrawal. I, I give it if the person's awake and asks, right? Like I think that's it, you know, but still it's almost like you have... So my point is that 
with these things that you're talking about, part of the changing of the approach is what you talked about, right? So, and, and even if you just say it for a small portion, right? If, if they're working beside you to manage cases, because one thing they told me at the works was you can't make your institution harm reduction capable unless you have someone with lived experience on your team. That's what they said. And I believe that true and true, right? And so part of it happens with, with you being on the team. Part of it happens with you sharing your story. Part of it happens with you giving some tips and suggestions. And I also think we have to shift what the goal of care is and what are the specific steps we, we provide. Uh, and it starts with uh, the, the comfort. How do we help them be comfortable? And how do we get them to get that life essential medical care? Yeah. Right. And, and, yeah. and it all starts with treating like human beings. Yeah. That's yeah. where it all starts. Yeah. So, I mean, the, that's the where other... it all starts. So, if you use that as the overarching kind of treat everyone like a human uh, uh, being. Yeah. So, I know you don't want to, that's one of these uncomfortable truths because you don't want to accept that people don't treat people with like human well, beings. Well, well, there's that. I also think that, uh, I mean, I, I just, I don't know why I keep going to steps because so, so at home, you know, every now and then my wife is like, you're not showing any consideration. And then, then I'm just like, how would I show consideration? <laughs> like, how would you? And, and I think, I think, I think there's some things where like maybe, maybe it has to be an internal process. Maybe uh, we have to reflect that, say, hey, if I see a doctor or a politician or a CEO uh, versus if I see somebody who's homeless, who's swearing at me and spitting at me, what's different in the care that I provide? Maybe it has to be an internal process. I also think if we, we I think we can come up with steps, right, on how to show that you, you uh, care. You can come up with steps, but, but, but beyond that, let's, the, the, the overarching thing is that, and you know it when you see it, it's hard to articulate it perhaps what not being treated like a human being is, but you know it. You've seen it in your own organization. You've seen it in my organization. You see it every day. And I've seen it sometimes in how how I act, and then somebody has to call me on it, right? Like for when I'm a little bit different than I. Well, I, I've never seen you do that. In fairness, yeah. but yeah. Uh, but I think it's it, it people when you know it, when you see it, you know it, and uh, you know, and that's um, and and that's that's where it starts, right? So, yeah. and and there's no amount of training that's going to do that. But other than you're right, having somebody with lived experience on the team is a huge is a great first step. That's great advice that they gave you, and. That's probably the reason I got on the team was because of that advice and because you listened to it. So you're not part of the problem here, right? But you're trying to navigate but the, but the what, how is, to be part of the solution. The, the thing is, all these uh, trainings, you know, um, I mean, uh, when you make it mandatory, when you make it uh, ongoing, when you make it this iterative process of uh, growth, uh, you, you avoid it. Uh, I find for these trainings that, that I go to, everyone's already drank the Kool-Aid. Everyone uh, sees these people with compassion, care, and then they don't know what steps to do when they're with the person, right? And so maybe that's why I also go to the steps. The other reason is that, you know, I've worked with a few people who are internal medicine doctors. They're very, very good at what they do. And even for things like, you know, grief or like someone passing away or like giving advice, uh, they, they they work in acronyms, right? So they'll come up with some kind of acronym, like uh, they'll like give and like, uh, I don't know, get this. And then, um, in like I don't know, like some people work better with uh, steps. And part of me thinks that for the um, the eMERGE or for surgeons or stuff like that, if we can come up with a the checklist, right? Uh, and and me and I, I think it would be good to figure out what it means to be. So I'll give you I'll give, I'll give, just give you one example, right? So wh when I went to the the works for the first time, because because I was uh, struggling, like oh treat them as, like, uh, and I was like, what does that mean? What does that mean? And then then this guy who who was phenomenal in uh, teaching me a bunch of stuff was like, look, you know when the person walks in the room. Uh, like so at the entrance for the works we have the waiting area everyone looks up makes eye contact smiles and then goes back to their work 
mm-hmm. right? Uh, they have a clear path to the harm reduction uh, supplies that people can, this is probably before COVID, clear path to the harm reduction supplies that they can go get. The fifth, fifth time or the sixth time the person comes say, hi, I'm Pat, or hi, I'm Jim, and nice to meet you. And then the seventh or eighth time, they, they always do the same thing. The person comes in, eye contact, smile, go back to what they're, they're doing. Uh, and then they uh, they say, hey, uh, you know, in case you're interested, we have like a wound care nurse here. We have this if you want to see them. And so so I think like I, I think it's important to figure out how to unpack the how. And so the example would be, you know, for that that case you brought around, around the, the foot things, right? <laughs> this is going to sound horrible. It's almost like see the person's suffering, see the person as a human being, uh, smile on the outside, uh, figure out how to stop the harm first or how to support, how to, what's the TLC and love and care that you provide to a family member who was, uh, who was here. Uh, and then, uh, and then explicit sort of a steps, but, but you're right though. I, I, when, when you teach someone the steps, I've seen interviews where people are following all the steps. It doesn't feel like the person cares. And, and there's something, and that's why like good actors, they can completely embody the experience, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, in, in medicine, we're not trained as actors. We're trained as checklist followers. I guess you sure. If you want to make a checklist, if a checklist helps, helps uh, certain people to do it, I, I've not done that. But I think what you've described is kind of how you'd be treated in a Tim Hortons too. And uh, they seem to have managed that quite well. <laughs> so with the, you know, feeling welcome and, 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 and all those Throw things. Throw in one or two comments, you know, compliment something they're wearing. I mean, the challenge Gosh. is that it would have to be authentic right like well uh, that's the thing right so if it's a check oh well, yeah what's your problem I, I already said uh how are you doing and i made eye contact um it, I've, I've heard that before <laughs> i've heard i've heard like variants of that before you know when people do uh, these interviews we give them feedback and they're like i don't understand what was wrong i did this 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 and i, I don't know how to give a feedback saying it looks like you didn't really care and you were focused <laughs> on your checklist and so in uh in medical exams they used to have something they might still have it where they have half of it is a checklist and then half of it is global Im- impression. And, and the, the interesting, I mean, the, the, the pro checklist group side in me uh, notices that when somebody hits all the checklists, usually the score is a little bit higher versus lower. But there is that, um, does the person genuinely care? Are they genuinely interested yeah. and invested in getting this person better? Or do they just need to figure out what their decision tree is? Yeah. And the patient knows every single time. Yeah, we, uh, I think for, I think exactly, and I think maybe that's a you know kind of a, a good point to sort of uh, to sort of wrap things up on yeah. this is that is that I think that this population, a population that, that I've been a member of for a long time, uh, has a pretty good bullshit filter. Of course, <laughs> and yeah. and if 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 somebody's trying to yeah. bullshit us. You know, we've had the rug pulled out from underneath us for so long in every scenario you can possibly imagine. We've been disappointed and, and deceived and taken advantage of. So if you think you're going to come at us with, a you know, something that's going to, you know, you think you're going to fake it and get through it, it's probably the wrong population to try to fake it on. But if you come at us with sincerity, with normalizing what we're doing and not judging us, then... You know, yeah. we're pretty open to that yeah. and just not treating us like we're a different class of citizen. Like yeah. we, we're just as worthy of care as you are, yeah, yeah, as yeah. your mother is and as your cousin is yeah. and um, and your colleagues are. And uh, and I think you'll find that we can be a willing recipient of care and, 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 and we can be good patients, too, yeah, if you treat good, us well. Very good patients. Yeah, very good yeah. patients. Yeah, so I think I think what you just said is something that I'm going to have to listen to a couple of uh, times. 
because there was a lot that was uh, there uh, and it felt uh, very real and I appreciate you saying those uh, those things. Um, to finish up today, just, just because I think this is, unfortunately, this is going to be an ongoing uh, iterative uh, collaborative yeah. Uh, process. Yeah. Um, I would say it's semi-mandatory in my mind, right, uh, where I just really try to get harm reduction and I really try to fully Im embody it, right? Because I, I do believe it's an ongoing uh, journey. And every year, there, there's more that I need to self-reflect. So I'm going to just summarize sure. my take-homes uh, for uh, for today. And then let's let's revisit this in um, in, in a month or two because uh, there's a few things that are in my mind that I'm trying to roll. These are the low, lower-hanging uh, fruits. But eventually, there's going to be a lot of other stuff. So so today, today what, what I've heard uh, from you and from our, um, our dialogue... Uh, harm reduction is important in hospitals because we want people to get the medical care without them leaving. And, and it starts with really accepting someone for who they are and the choices they make, regardless whether it matches our views and values or, or not. And we really want to facilitate and support them getting that care and comfort's a big part of it. There's a lot of structural barriers, and in the community environments, uh, they have a lot of workarounds uh, for it. I mean, they still have to work for you. you can't just like do anything you want in the in the community. Uh, but the larger an organization gets, the harder and uh, harder it is uh, to um, really make shifts in practices, right? Especially when the risk is somewhat unclear. We know the risk of not providing something is quite high, but we know that from our personal experience, right, uh, clinically. Uh, but for some reason in medicine, they don't weigh the risk of not providing it as much. And then you also talked about the trainings, right? Uh, how there's value in seeing somebody who's been uh, successful, uh, how, um, uh, what in the components of the training. And I really like those four or five words that you said off the top of your head. I'm going to have to listen to that, uh, that again. Uh, and uh, and how people can really tell when you're authentic or not. And even though I was focused on the steps, uh, what we need and the checklist, and you can itemize it, you can't do it without having that full um, connection in, uh, in some way. There are a few other things that came up as well, but I think this is a good start for, for me, and thank you for having this impromptu uh, conversation around uh, harm reduction. I think uh, I think even though you know my intentions are, are good, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's, there's a long way that I think I need to go uh, personally and also in how I interact with others and spreading that message. Because it, it's probably not enough for me to give a certain level of care and ignore when I hear from colleagues about different levels of care they're they're giving, right? And so that's something that I'll need to uh, work on. Yeah, and let's let's keep this going. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks for listening. Okay. Yeah. Take yeah. care. Yeah.